Radical Flavors presents the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast. FeministCoffeeHour.com, at FemCoffeePod on Twitter, and AskFM slash FeministCoffeeHour. We also have an email address. You can email us at FeministCoffeeHour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And we're so happy that you tuned in with us right now. So what's on your mind today, Karen? So today I want to talk a little bit about this article posted in Elle uh, by Joe Piazza called I Changed My Last Name 12 Hours After Getting Married and Yes, I'm Still a Feminist. So this is kind of, I think, a a long-standing discussion for feminists and uh, women in the U.S. at least uh, about getting married and taking your husband's name. And so this woman wrote an article because her her friends were, as she put it, irrationally pissed at her for changing her last name. And the things that she reads as being irrationally pissed are, are people asking, I can't believe you changed your, ne- your name, uh, is feminism dead, it's weird that you of all people would change your name, like really weird, you know. And so uh, people were asking her why, why did she change her last name? Mm-hmm. Uh, because she's a feminist. So uh, she kind of just goes into this long explanation of she likes her husband a lot, basically. That's why she took his last name. Mm -hmm. Uh, And her issue is that people are surprised. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've also, I've been surprised when friends uh, change their last name when they get married, especially very professional friends who have degrees in their... Uh, maiden names mm-hmm. and so yeah it's weird I, I read that article and I think that she sounded very defensive and I, I don't think that it makes her a bad feminist that she changed her name I mean not everyone's actions are going to be in line 100% with their philosophy or their politics 100% of the time because we're human beings and not political philosophical robots but she did sound extremely defensive, and I, I was kind of wondering why she felt this way. Because as a feminist, she would probably already know all the arguments that feminists make against changing your name when you get married. And I do think... Well, yeah, and she goes into that. Like you said, that the term maiden name is kind of a funny word. Um because wasn't well, she's no longer a maiden. <laughs> I, I know, but didn't that always mean virgin? So like, it's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually had cause yeah. to use that phrase to, today or yesterday uh, with a friend of mine. I said something like, "Oh yeah, oh someone that has your same maiden name is in the news today. Isn't that weird?" And then I was just thinking, it's weird that you know, saying your maiden name because it's <laughs> not, not accurate yeah. exactly. yeah exactly so that's funny and so one of the things that I think really struck me about this article um is basically that like no one cares you know (laughs) the article is really defensive because no one cares I mean she has some friends who seem kind of surprised Mm -hmm. by this behavior but um like I think the vast majority of American women change their last name when they get married I don't think you need to write an article that says I did it because most women do, and the reason that they do it is really interesting because, you know, the subtitle under this article is, my name isn't a big part of my identity, my marriage is. And so it's really interesting because I wonder if 
her husband changed his last name because his marriage was a big part of his identity to her maiden name. He changed his maiden name. What's the male version of maiden? I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I actually have no idea either. Made man. Yeah, that, that's very man, interesting. The, Mandin. <laughs> the pressures on, on women to change their name and, and how people react in a strange way if uh, men do change their names. I don't know any men who have changed their names to their wives' names when they got married with regards to straight couples. I, don't know I do either. know three different couples where it was a man and a woman when they got married and both people hyphenated. And I do mm-hmm. know that some of those men took a lot of flack for it, which I think is silly. Really? I think it's a, I think that's a, you know, a good alternative. I actually asked my husband, how about we both hyphenate? And he said, how about not? So we didn't. And um, instead of both of us changing <laughs> our names, neither of us did. And that was fine. Um, and a couple of people were, I don't know, made silly comments about it, but to me it was the easiest thing to do, to not change my name, not do any paperwork. And a lot of women say, oh, I'm changing my name because it's easier. Um, I don't know what's easier than doing nothing, but... Uh, right? <laughs> right. I, I think... Um, it's easier socially. Yeah, and, and I, I saw an article, I think it was by Amanda Marcotte, and she said what women are saying when they're saying it's easier is it's easier not to deal with people asking you why you're keeping your name or insinuating it's because you don't love your husband or because you're already planning your divorce, which are things that people said to me on Reddit. Um, I don't know if that counts as reasonable people or not, but um, <laughs> to avoid that kind of backlash, uh, right. that then it would be easier to change your name. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's easier because of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. It's easier to submit to the patriarchy, which is why this article seems like such a kind of bratty thing to me. And I mean, that's a bit personal. Maybe I don't think that she's a brat, obviously. That's not, I don't know her. Mm. But it seems strange to me to write this entire thing about how uh, a few people question her choice and she thinks it's really unacceptable. And also one of the things that is really interesting is that she takes it into this whole realm of Defending choice feminism Mm -hmm. as real feminism. And that's where it gets really irritating Mm -hmm. because she's like, so her line is, this age of choice is fucking great. We choose to get married. We choose to be single. We choose to have babies. We choose to have no babies. So why shouldn't we choose to change our names? And here's the deal. Like, yeah, of course, change your name. Just don't write this gigantic article about, like, fuck you if I never understood what choice feminism is anyway. The, the idea that any choice you make is feminist because you chose it doesn't... That's that's a tautology, I think, I'm looking at, or non sequitur. I always get those confused. But it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, it it makes a certain narcissistic sense, and it makes sense in terms of, like, it's amazing that we have these choices, and ultimately... There is a goal, I think, in the future where we'll have a family structure where this kind of thing is not based on this patriarchal tradition, and then the choice will be completely out of context and completely personal, Mm -hmm. and instead of taking place under the patriarchy, you know, there are just too many social pressures to say, this was, this was just my choice, and it cannot be examined. Mm -hmm. 
And and I think if somebody gives into that social pressure, that doesn't make them a bad person. No, absolutely not. But it's an unfeminist thing to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you a bad feminist for doing unfeminist things. Right. Uh, I mean, by that definition, no one is a good feminist, you know? Well, no one's a perfect uh, feminist is really... Right. Because that's impossible. And there are also some interesting... I mean, there are some situations where it's like, okay, are you a bad feminist because you're hyper-femme? Are you a bad feminist because you are idealizing masculinity? Those things, it's like impugning that person's choice seems like more we have to question everything women do. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to name changing, it seems strange to me that your identity is more tied to your marriage than your name. And the the history, the historical context of it is that you take the name because you are no longer property of your father. You're property of your husband now. And that's patriarchal. I agree. All right. So let's talk about what you've been up to. So um, right now in the feminist outer boroughs of New York, where we're New York City, where we're (laughs) broadcasting from, um, people are very excited that the Mets are in the World Series. They're not doing so good right now, but where uh, you're listening to this in the future, you'll know (laughs) who won the World Series, whether it was the Mets or the Royals. And um, I I like sports. I don't follow them as closely as I used to, but I do like baseball. And there was a story that caught my eye, and there's a follow-up that I think it's kind of important to talk about or just to let people know about. And it was a few weeks ago now, might be mm-hmm. a month or more now when we, when we listened. A few weeks ago, there were there was a sorority that did an outing at an Arizona Diamondbacks game. The Alpha Chi Omega chapter of Arizona State University went to a Diamondbacks mm-hmm. game, and they spent a lot of time um, taking selfies of themselves and posing for pictures. And they seemed like that they were having a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. the... Yeah, of course. Right, yeah. They were just college girls having fun. And the announcers... Yeah, the announcers started making fun of them and they were kind of obsessed and they focused on them and they kind of became um, just the idea that a bunch of college girls were taking selfies went viral. And there was a very mean-spirited... Well, you know, millennials. <laughs> exactly. There's a, there's a very mean-spirited kind of sexism in the way that the story was talked about. And the Arizona Diamondbacks, when they saw this, they kind of got dollar signs in their eyes and they asked the girls to come back for another game. And they said, no, thank you, but could you please donate like the famous selfie girls? Yes. The famous <laughs> selfie girls that it would attract more attention and more people to come to those, like a sideshow, those games late in the series. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think they saw through this and they said, but would you please donate the tickets that you were going to give to us to a new leaf? which is a nonprofit that helps victims of domestic violence that their sorority does a lot of work with. And I thought that that was really great for them. And I don't know if the Diamondbacks took them up on that request. I hope that they did. And I think it was a really good way of both helping and publicizing that charity that they support and also kind of turning the, the Diamondbacks request kind of back on them so they could see how ridiculous it was, ridiculous it was to kind of, you know, take advantage and, and join in and mocking them for just being a bunch of young women having fun at a baseball game, which is kind of the point 
sports are mm-hmm. for entertainment at the end of the day and they were being entertained even if part of enjoying that entertainment was taking selfies at the game so good job well have you been to a baseball game in the stadium there's so much downtime yes there is and most of the time during the downtime they're advertising to you they're showing advertisements. Yeah, exactly. They're like doing giveaways that are always sponsored by a department store or an electronics chain or a fast food restaurant. Yeah, and or whatever um, it is. Taking selfies with your friends is probably so, yeah. more fun than, you know, watching commercials. Yeah, it's so bizarre. But there's there's clearly also I think um, this concept that women who take selfies are not to be taken seriously, and it seems like this. Uh, offer to to have the the tickets given to a a women's shelter in this like charitable move really showed their emotional maturity kind of in contrast to people's response to this viral sensation Mm -hmm. of girls taking selfies at a baseball game Mm -hmm. the horror the horror (laughs) people might like themselves yeah well especially i saw this meme on Facebook, oh, yeah. we're not talking about that many memes uh, tonight, which was, it said, um, selfies are terrifying because if you take selfies, it means you like yourself, and if you like yourself, it's harder to be advertised to. Oh, Because so much of commercialism and marketing relies on the consumer's uh, self-hatred or at least insecurity, which I think was kind of cool. Oh, the need for needless self-improvement. Yes. Via so our, our product. <laughs> yes, buy our product and you'll uh, feel better. You'll be a better person. Mm-hmm. So our topic is going to be women on the $10 bill. Uh, in the United States, they announced that soon we're going to have a woman on the 10 but they haven't said who it's going to be. And they're asking the public to weigh in. So uh, this is our opinion. But uh, first, we have to have a uh, shout-out to my friend, uh, Rachel Tobias who is a comedian and activist on Long Island. And she um, went to an NPR Halloween party dressed as a woman on the 10. And the picture will be in the show notes. Uh, Good job, Rachel. At uh, politicalflavors.com slash podcast, which is the same website as feministcoffeehour.com to give Mm -hmm. away a trade secret. That's something (gasps) people will figure out if they look at their URL bar. (laughs) Oh Don't my goodness! Tell them. You're taking away the magic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we have our list our, of our uh, top six women that we would like to have on the ten dollar bill. Yeah. And to start us off, coffee hour endorsement. Exactly. Uh, our first woman that we want to have on the ten is Sally Ride, who was the first American woman in space. And mm-hmm. she became the first American woman in space in 1983. Yes. And so she received her PhD from Stanford in physics. And mm-hmm. uh, so some interesting things. So she not only is the first woman in space, uh, the first American woman in orbit. Let me be more specific. But um, she was also... She was also gay, mm-hmm. which is cool to me, at least. <laughs> but so she would be the the first uh, gay woman in orbit as well, as far as we know. The first gay American woman in orbit. Mm-hmm. 
and po- possibly the first gay American person in space. We don't know. Um, I don't think there's ever been an out astronaut. I was reading an article about this getting ready, and um, ah. she didn't come out till later in life. So some of the astronauts who were in space before her might not be out yet, but she might also be the first gay American person in space. She may have been. One of the reasons why I really like the idea of her being on the 10 is obviously her scientific achievements. Of course. Really cool. But I think that she set a really good example for uh, other women in the way that she dealt with a lot of the the BS from men in NASA. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's this great headline. Actually, Karen, you told me about it, about how they wanted to give her 100 tampons for seven days in space. Yeah, the, the NASA engineers, like, asked her if that would be enough. Right. Um, and she had to deal with things like that. And then also what I thought was really cool was the story about how they wanted her to go on TV with, Bob Hope Mm -hmm. and she said no because she thought that the way that he always had surrounded himself with uh, showgirls and used women's bodies as decorations was very objectifying and she said I don't like the way he exploits women and uh, she refused Mm. to do that and I think that was kind of a neat anecdote because I think that when you work for NASA or any government science agency you know how precarious funding is and how important public image is Mm-hmm. But that, you know, she stuck to her principles on stuff like this, especially such an American icon as Bob Hope. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's an American icon, but he's an even bigger one. Um, right. I think that that was a really uh, good example of um, why we should put her on the tent. I agree. So our next candidate for a woman on the tent is another Brooklyn native from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. <laughs> Shirley Chisholm, the first mm-hmm. African American cong- Congresswoman. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that I know about Shirley Chisholm is from the documentary Unbought and Unbossed, which mm-hmm. is about her 1972 campaign for president. And they think it's a fantastic movie and everyone should watch it. And, you know, it it has a lot of footage and a lot of interviews with her, both from that time and from, you know, years later, looking back on it and reflecting on what that was like. And um, one of the things that I think was interesting is that, unfortunately, even though she was the only woman who was running in the race at that time for president, and she was one of the first women to make a serious attempt at um, running for the White House in a major party. She was the first black um, person to run for president as well. Yep. Um, she did not have the support of the local feminist community. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a clip in the movie where Bella Abzug says, oh, I didn't think she was running for president seriously. I thought that it was just, you know, to make the point that a black woman could run for president, which doesn't really make any sense. Um, but she, she faced opposition, you know, both from, you know, quote unquote white feminism, like right there. And, you know, also from, um, men, both, both black and white who, who didn't think that a woman should run for president. Yep. So we had 
white feminism TM before there was a white feminism TM title. Yes. Yeah. And so another thing that characterized her um, start in Congress was she was original, originally put on the House Forestry Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was her original assignment. And uh, she was assertive enough to demand being reassigned to something more consequential. And she was. She was reassigned to the Veterans Affairs Committee. And then uh, the Education and Labor Committee, which was Mm -hmm. more fitting with her political background from her service in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially representing people from Brooklyn. Right. But a lot of her her focus, uh, she focused a lot on social programs, uh, programs for education and access. Mm-hmm. She was she was a great lefty in that respect. She focused on social programs during the Vietnam War. She wanted to make sure that social programs didn't get cut for defense funding. She certainly gets my vote on the ten dollar bill. Mm-hmm. Our next uh, person we'd like to suggest for the ten dollar bill, the next woman on the ten that we'd like to see, is Rachel Carson. Um, Rachel Carson was a marine biologist and conservationist. Uh, She was born in 1907. And the thing that she's most famous for is her book, Silent Spring, which was published in 1962. And the book was about the dangers of pesticides, specifically DDT. And the Mm -hmm. title was kind of a metaphor for if DDT kills all of the birds, then in springtime, it will be silent. We won't hear the birds singing and this book took off it was extremely popular and people became very concerned about pesticides and about DDT after reading this book and of course the industry the pesticides industry was not happy about this and they tried to slander her and um, smear her research mm-hmm. but um, you know that time the 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 late 60s and early 70s were, was the beginning of the modern environmental movement mm-hmm. and congress really did listen and published almost in direct response to silent spring um you, you can trace it back but 10 years later they published the uh fifra um environmental policy people have mm-hmm. lots and lots of acronyms which is the federal insecticide <laughs> fungicide and rodenticide act Mm-hmm. which strongly regulated um, pesticides, fungicides, and rodenticides. And... You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, and made our country and, um, and the world a lot safer for not only birds, but human beings. And so that's the reason why I would want to see Rachel Carson on the 10 for her work in, in founding the modern environmental movement and also mm-hmm. for everything... Um, that she did to make us safer as Americans. Yeah. So our next uh, woman on the 10 mm-hmm. was born Araminta Ross, uh, but we know her as Harriet Tubman, uh, mm-hmm. conductor in the Underground Railroad. Born a slave and uh, escaping slavery, she became a... Uh, conductor on the Underground Railroad. She made 19 trips and escorted over 300 slaves to freedom. And she uh, she never lost a single passenger. And this was during wow. a, a time when psychology, uh, 
psychologists uh, were very curious about the, the mental illness, drapetomania, that made slaves want to be free and oh escape. It's awful. Yeah. I think that that was a mental illness oh, classified yeah. as one. Oh, yeah. So, interesting bit of psych history alongside uh, Harriet Tubman's history. So, at one point, um, Harriet Tubman had a bounty of $40,000 uh, for her capture. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot then. Okay, so the next person, the next woman that we think should be on the $10 bill is Emma Lazarus. She is a uh, American poet who is most famous for writing the poem The New Colossus, which is on the base of the Statue of Liberty. And the most famous verse of that is, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And I think that that her words are put on the Statue of, of Liberty is that her words are so symbolic of America. I think that we should recognize the woman who wrote those words by putting her on the 10. And she's also um, one of the few Jewish Americans who's making uh, the short list for women on the 10. Ah. Um, and I think that um, as the daughter of an immigrant and as, as, as someone who is a proponent for that I think immigration makes America stronger, um, I think that that symbolism is also important to to recognize that that someone who whose poetry was used um, as such a symbol of America and a symbol of of this American strength that we have in our diversity. I would love mm -hmm. to see Emma Lazarus on the ten. Absolutely. So our final nomination officially endorsed by feminist coffee hour podcast for women on the 10 uh american hero rosa parks mm -hmm. definitely so on and i think oh, it's quite likely that she'll make it for for realsies yes. <laughs> yes so yeah i mean even trump could think of her Indeed. <laughs> so uh on december 1st 1955 in montgomery alabama uh, Rosa Parks refused to give her seat to a white passenger. And that refusal led to her arrest. And her arrest led to the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm -hmm. Something that I, that I um, want to share, I think, if people want to know more about Rosa Parks, there's two books that came out about her recently. One is called... The rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa. Pa the rebellious life of Mrs. Rosa mm. Parks, which I read, and I think it's an amazing book, and everyone should read it. And it really goes into detail about um, her life and her childhood, and her family had to hide from the Klan um, when she was small, and mm. how um, as she got older, she became an activist in organizing early chapters of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And how in, in some places in the United States, the NAACP was actually outlawed, wow. which to me was just totally mind-boggling that, that there were states and localities that were saying that a civil rights organization was illegal. But that's really how much the government feared black people organizing for their civil rights. Mm -hmm. and it's believable when you consider you can... the backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement now. Indeed, yes. Certainly precedent. And, mm -hmm. 
and I think that the book really puts her whole life into context and, and, and puts that one day into context because a lot of people, she's kind of been um, mythologized in a very specific way and as, you know, just this one woman who was tired and it kicked off this whole thing, mm -hmm. but she was really an activist her entire mm -hmm. life. And I think the book really puts that into context and I think that's really great. And there's another book... Um, that I haven't yet read, mm -hmm. but it's on my list. And it's called uh, At the Dark End of the Street, mm -hmm. Black Women, Rape and Resistance, A New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of the Black Power Movement. Mm. And one of the things that I think is interesting there is how there was a black woman in uh, Rosa Parks community that was attacked and sexually assaulted by white men. Mm -hmm. And Rosa Parks assisted... Um, in the investigation and, and getting this to the attention of the authorities and trying to get justice for this woman. And I think that there's a lot about um, that time and a lot about uh, Rosa Parks specifically that we don't like to think about because it's more radical mm -hmm. or because it doesn't fit, um, you know, the ditto that we were given during Black History Month in elementary school. Right. It's not going to go on what we tell kids during Black History Month, right. well, but I think it's important it may not part of American be history. Age appropriate for children. Exactly, <laughs> well, yeah. exactly. But then it doesn't come up in high school right, either. Right. So, um, I I was I was just thinking about this about you know when when you're a grown up you are responsible for your own education. So mm -hmm. definitely check out that those books. Absolutely. If you want to know more about Rosa Parks? Yeah, good recommendation. I actually am really interested in reading it now. Maybe I'll borrow your copy. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah. What a, there are so many amazing, badass, and impressive, notable American women. Mm hmm Another book, if you have Ooh. a child in your life, or even if you don't, is called uh, Rad American Women A to Z, which I was kind of looking at when I was thinking about this right. list. And it, it has women from all different uh, places um, in America and ethnicities and who did all kinds of work from arts to politics to learn about American women you might not know about. And then only one person, Harriet Tubman, wasn't from the 20th century. Right. So we do have a little bit of a modern bias. But yes, for sure. But who doesn't? I think that, right, <laughs> especially, you know. Americans in the country that's much younger than, than many other countries are going to have a more modern bias. Yeah, and also, I mean, women given more freedom in modernity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So who would go on your $10 bill, audience? Yeah, let us know. Leave a note to us in the comments of the blog post. Or you can send us an email, feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to us individually on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And I am at a Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. So please send me some feedback. I want to hear your thoughts. Exactly. And uh, the show is on Twitter at femcoffeepod. And uh, you can also send us anonymous feedback at on AskFM slash Feminist Coffee Hour. So hopefully we'll hear from or you. Or ask us anonymous questions. Not just yes. feedback. 
And also give us suggestions. Exactly. We want to hear from you. Who are you, listener? <laughs> right. And uh, we have lots of ideas for what we wouldn't have on yeah. the show. But if you uh, have any suggestions, we're open yeah, to Yeah, let us know. So thank you so much for downloading, and we'll talk to you next time. See ya. theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.